As a church community, we have the privilege of joining with works that extend throughout the world in ministering the gospel of God's grace. And we are privileged as a church to develop these relationships with others that are workers that go out and do that. And we are privileged to have two of those workers that we just adopted into our family of ministry with us this morning. So I'm going to ask that Austin and Christiana would just stand for a moment. At our last business meeting, we appointed these as workers that we're going to partner with as they minister for the glory of God. So thank you, guys. You can have a chance to perhaps meet them and get acquainted with them after our service. It's a blessing to have you both with us. If you'd take your Bibles and join me in Romans chapter 1, I would like to read our text beginning in verse 18 down through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together before we begin our study. Our good God in heaven, we come before you anticipating you will be faithful to your promise to the church, that by your spirit you will teach us the things of our God, You will open our hearts and lead us in the path of wisdom and righteousness because we hold fast to your word this morning. It's our authority, it is our sufficiency, and we trust in you as our God. By your spirit, then, would you lead us in a direction, our individual lives, that they may reflect more the image of Christ, growing in our understanding of him, but growing as well as we apply the truths of Scripture to our very lives. We want to work in tandem and in harmony with the spirit of the living God indwelling us. So give us clarity as we work together through this this text. 
Give us understanding of it. And Father, would you apply it to our hearts and lives so that we grow together in a way that honors you, that we walk in a manner that is worthy of your good name. Lead and direct us in this act of worship now before you. In Christ's name, amen. From our previous studies of Romans chapter 1, Paul wrote to explain why the justification of faith is so important to us. And as I'm looking at this text, and I suspect many of you do as well, you see kind of our current events unfolding here. Most days that I break for lunch, I will go to news sources and try to keep up on what's happening in our world, especially what's happening in our nation. And I don't think a week passes. And of course, the news is filled with all sorts of turmoil and troubles and disasters. But not a week passes that you do not see the slide of man deeper into darkness. More and more perversities, more and more sickness, spiritual, emotional sickness. There are disturbing things that are happening all around us. And I can say, even though I love this nation, what we see happening in our culture today is explained in this text. We know why we are in the place we are in today, in this nation, because this is what's taking place. Paul is describing the desperate need all men have for the gospel of justification by faith. It is because the wrath of God is upon us. It is being revealed to men who suppress the truth. This is man's response to God. This is how man is is, uh, looking at God and failing to worship God. And we see the progression of man slide further and further away. And as man turns its back on God, as this nation turns its back on God progressively, God also progressively is giving man over. We have looked at three parts to this study at the end of chapter 1 of Romans. And in those three parts, God is progressively giving man over more and more to his own depravity. As John Stott said, God is handing sinners over to themselves. This is what's on the heart of men. And it is important for us as gospel believers to discern and understand what God is doing here because this is a present tense revelation of God's wrath. He is now pouring out his displeasure on man and his wickedness. We saw the first part of that as God gave men over in judgment to their dishonorable hearts, their impurities. And and we see that verse 24 and 25 is a reference to sexual impurities of any kind. God gave them over to those lusts and desires that were already on their hearts. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Because they would not worship God in his glory. They turned instead to the creation rather than the creator himself. And because they turned away from truth to the lie, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. And we see the world of homosexuality here that not only rejects the moral laws of God, but the natural laws as well. As man slides deeper and deeper into darkness, God giving man over to the sin in their heart, the depravity of their heart. And we can look at our world today and we can see a lot of sexual deviations and perversions. There's a lot of trouble out there. And to us, they seem pathetically wretched, and they are. 
But that's not as far as man can go. We may think as we look at verse 26 and 27, that's about as bad as it gets. But it is not. Because in verse 28, because man has rejected God's truth, God is giving them over in a fuller way. Our study this morning takes us deeper into the judgment of God against the stubbornness of those enslaved to sin. And we're reminded here in verse 20 where we read that God has displayed sufficient truth of himself both within the heart and outwardly in creation itself that men are without excuse. God has revealed himself. God has made himself known, yet in man's persistence to suppress the truth of God, refusing both God's glory and his truth, mankind presses against the knowledge of God still further. In verse 28, this is what it says. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. This is a statement of man whereby man is saying in his sin, we are done with you, God. This brings us to the judgment of God giving man over to that depraved mind. The judgment of God, the giving over of God to man's depravity. I think it is curious that the depraved mind is an expression here of man's deeper depravity than what we saw on those previous two judgments. Because initially we would think, well, what's happening on the mind, isn't that what causes us to do bad things? When there's trouble on the mind, when there's sin on the mind and the heart... It compels us to do wicked things. And yet here, the depraved mind is the third slide down in this progression deeper into darkness. God is giving man over in a deeper sense because of the depravity of mind. The Greek word for depraved means that which is useless or worthless. And as we look further into our study this morning and what Paul is identifying here, I think we begin to see that this truly is a deeper slide into darkness than even the previous two judgments of God. Man is taking a deliberate set in his mind against God. And again, as we've noted before, so it is also true of this declaration, God did not give to men this depraved mind any more than God gave unsaved men their degrading passions or their impure, shameful desires. Rather, God gave man over to the sinful condition that they already had. And this is also true in our study today. God is giving men over to a depraved mind that they already possess. And in this act of God's judgment, he is releasing his restraining, his restraining graces and delivering men to wicked desires that men and women hunger for. <clears throat> in our previous two studies, sexual impurities, perverse sexual practices, those are noted by Paul. But with those who have depraved minds, the list of offenses against the truth of God, you will notice, is very broad. In the previous two judgments, two verses each given to that. But here, depraved mind, God giving them over. Paul provides an extensive list to describe for us what that depravity looks like. And with this list, there is a pretty broad reflection. But you will notice the language in these verses, verse 29, verse 28, where it says they're filled with all unrighteousness. They're full of envy, murder, and strife. You can see there is a much deeper reflection here of man's depravity. And those words, all unrighteousness, full of envy, murder, strife, etc. That's a very comprehensive statement. 
It's a comprehensive set against the very person of God, a God that has revealed himself to men, a God that is worthy of our worship because he is the God of truth. Man has taken in that God of truth, observed that God of truth, acknowledged that he knew something of this God of truth that said, I want nothing to do with him. We're done with him. It is very true that even as believers, some of the list of offenses that we're going to be looking at this morning, things that we commit as well. We commit some of these things. Yet because we have been washed, because we've been sanctified, because we have been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the living God, we do not live either fully or habitually in these wicked vices. That's the description that is given to us here of the depravity mind, or the depraved mind. They're fully into this unrighteousness. They're full of this envy, murder, strife, and so forth. This is then not a description of believers. These are things that we regularly repent of and we continually cleanse from all unrighteousness because of God's faithfulness to cleanse us. This is a description here in this chapter, of that which our minds have been renewed from. We've been delivered from this. And this is the judgment that we've been rescued out of. Remember, our minds have been transformed. Romans 12, verse 2. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Romans chapter 8. This is not a description of either the believer or the judgment that is against believers. This is a judgment against those that are rejecting ultimately God himself. Verse 28 begins by telling us that men and women this, in this truth-suppressing condition are done with God. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. They do not even want to, the knowledge of God in their minds. And with minds that are worthless, they in turn see God as worthless. They see it as a useless endeavor to acknowledge him any longer. And this view of God as useless or worthless must also then include their view of God's word. And that's why the list, the list of de depraved minds that we are given here. This is a list that is defined the very laws of Christ. This is a list of man's behavior as they look over God, they see his word, and they say, I want none of it. And we see the implication of the rejection of God's word as well as the rejection of God down in verse 32, where the depraved mind knows the ordinance of God, the law of God that brings death against the guilty. Man knows about that. They know that these, these sins bring death. And the sinner is worthy of that death. They know this stuff. But they reject it. They're unimpressed. Because they have reasoned that God is useless to them. So his person and his word is cast aside as irrelevant without merit and worthless. And with that full disregard for the knowledge of God in his word, it is no wonder that their thinking and their living is described in such unholy words as we see in this passage. Sadly, this is very common with our present culture, and it is clearly seen, I believe, within our own nation and the laws that are being implemented today. Just the idea of God is becoming unfit in our nation, is it not? God is being seen as worthless and useless. He's being discarded as unimpressive, and he's unimportant to this people. 
So it should not surprise us when this people or this nation promote the killing of the unborn. They celebrate sexual perversions that God declares as unholy. And our culture today literally pushes against the biblical views of marriage and family, often rejecting them altogether. It should not surprise us. Most striking, I think, is this open attack against the Christian faith, while at the same time, diversity of religious thought and beliefs are supported of every other kind. Paul gives us a description of the depraved mind that man is given over to in these verses. And it's in within this description that we begin to see the deeper darkness of man, the greater bondage man comes under as they suppress God's truth more fully, more heartily, and more tragically. We're going to look at this description this morning in three parts. What the depraved mind is filled with, what that depraved mind acts out or acts upon, and what that depraved mind is committed to. We begin with what it is filled with. And again, we're going to have to quickly examine some lengthy lists that Paul gives us of the qualities or the characteristics that describe for us, define for us what the depraved mind looks like. First, from verse 28 to 29, Paul describes what that mind is filled with. We've already seen in verse 28 that man is sunk to the point of finding God useless and unworthy of any consideration. This is a mind then that is filled with godliness, godlessness and even disdain for God and his word. And if we observe that this mind has no use for God, it says, any longer in your New American Standard. That has kind of a tone of finality to it. The implications of this darker descent into depravity is that someone who is finally and ultimately done with God here, likely never to return to faith in Christ. So are these ones beyond salvation? Is this a description of those who are forever done with Christ? Or to look at this from a different angle, are these ones whom God has forever rejected? I'm going to address that a little bit later. But it appears that the word any longer in the New American Standard was added by translators to clarify that men had known about God but they're entirely uninterested. They don't even want to acknowledge him. To say that they do not see fit to acknowledge God any longer into eternity might be excessive. In other words, it might be wrong to say there is no hope for these ones or that God is finally done with them because I do not believe that is the case. The point of the text is to show a deeper decline into the rejection of the truth of God. So there's a severity here to this third time of God giving man over to the rejection of truth. There may be far fewer of these that in the end turn to faith. But to say that these ones can never be saved, that would be going too far. It is important, however, to observe the dreadfulness of the depraved mind that's being described here. And I appreciate the words of Leon Morris from his commentary on this verse. He focuses more on the word acknowledge here. The word acknowledge. The man did not acknowledge God any longer. And he explains it this way. They refuse to have God in their knowledge. They, trust, they thrust him out of their circle of acquaintance. Their ignorance of God was not due to a lack of opportunity to know him, but to their deliberate refusal. They preferred other things 
to the knowledge of God. Is this not a description of the culture around us today? Another scholar added to this, it was not simply a case of humans being distracted by something else and losing sight of God. Rather, they gave God their consideration and concluded that God was unnecessary to their living. And Paul writes that the other things that man preferred to the knowledge of God were things which are not proper, it says, or things which ought not to be done. In other words, man is saying, yeah, God, we've looked you over. We're not interested. We're going to do this instead. And Paul writes that those other things are not proper. They're inappropriate. They shouldn't be done. And that might even be too polite a way to say it. That's almost like saying uh, we're doing things that are, say, poor etiquette, bad manners, or what is popular today, they're making bad choices. But this is not about making bad choices. And to dispel any confusion, Paul continues in verse 29 to show what has filled the depraved mind in place of the knowledge of God, being filled with all unrighteousness. This is not about making bad choices. This is about rejecting God and deliberately turning to filth, to wickedness, to greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. There's almost two inventories of corruption named here. The first describes the depraved mind as being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, all greed, and evil. The second describes the mind that is full of of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And in both of these, there is a strong emphasis on a mind that is comprehensively full of all kinds of ungodly things. And in this mind, the knowledge of God is deemed worthless, and the choice is made to be filled with the things that are contrary to God. Now, with regard to the first description, all unrighteousness and wickedness, Those are likely synonyms that are emphasizing the extent of man's godless depravity. Greed describes the selfish, the narcissistic character of godlessness. And it is a desire to please only self, to satisfy one's own desire without consideration of the goodness or the righteousness of God. To be filled with all greed suggests that there is an unlimited supply of selfishness. Man is continually saturating himself with self-admiration, self-love, giving self what self wants. Evil is added on to that. It's It's another translation, if you will, another word for depravity, badness, or malignity within. Both wickedness and evil describe not only the inner disposition of the depraved mind, but also that which brings harm to others. In other words, it's not only the character of the inner man, but it reflects in how he deals with other men around him. And again, there's no shortage of depravity here in that the one is filled with this, filled with all wickedness and evil. Every variation you can imagine is being discussed here by Paul. That's the first description. The second description that fills the depraved mind communicates an unholy hostility towards others. No surprise here. What fills the heart is going to be expressed outwardly, is it not? And so Paul makes that clear. What man has filled his heart with all of this wickedness and unrighteousness is now vented outwardly 
to others. Envy is the greedy, selfish heart that looks at others with jealousy, with disdain. It is the heart that is not satisfied with what one has, but they lust for what others have, and they want what others are. And very often, this brings the heart to murderous thoughts, whether or not an actual murder is committed. And we recall the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, where he reminds us of the Old Testament law, thou shalt not murder, but he does not stop there. He says, you commit murder in your hearts when you think wrongly, inappropriately, in hostility without cause, falsely accusing in hatred. Strife is added to this list. And it's not describing just a disagreement that you have with somebody else or a debate that you might enter into. Rather, the context of this word is that of wickedness, evil, unrighteousness, and greed. It is also in the context of being full of this kind of wicked strife. So this describes the wickedly contentious man or woman, the one who is known for quarreling, arousing fights, picking fights, picking contentions, and all out of a heart of unrighteousness. This is a level of wickedness that Paul wants his readers to understand. Deception, he adds to it. That makes up, if you look at Proverbs chapter 6, that makes up two of the seven things that the Lord God hates. And there is a third in that list in Proverbs 6 that is closely linked with deception. Here there is a pattern in Romans chapter 1. There's a pattern of deception that characterizes the depraved man. And it's marked with wickedness towards others. There's a deception that, that causes trouble and grief and pain and hurt to others. I want you to jump ahead and look at Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul goes on to describe human depravity, showing there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that are seeking after God. But notice what it says about deception in chapter 3 and verse 13. Those that deceive, he says, their throat is an open grave. You get a picture here, don't you? With their tongues, they keep deceiving repetitively habitually. This is ongoing. It's not a once in a while little deception. The poison of asps or vipers or snakes under their lips. This is a vivid picture of what it looks like when men persistently suppress the truth. They're left with man's truth alone. They've rejected God's truth. And now they turn to man's truth, which is deception. It's a lie. And it shows that this, this lying, this deception, is like what you would envision when the grave is left open. It's foul. It's vulgar. It stinks. And Paul is not describing bad breath here. He's saying when you speak deception, this is what it looks like and smells like. And they keep on doing it as a tongue that repeatedly, habitually, is deceiving. And these lies... What do they do? They cause grief, pain, destruction, like the bite of a venomous snake. I hate to speak of our leaders in this country wrongly, but all too often what I see in our government officials is persistent deception, which they surely know in their hearts they're doing. No doubt they justify themselves as having a good cause for doing so. Yeah, I'm deceiving here, but it's for a good cause. It's for my party. It's for the nation or whatever. But God says it smells like a rotting corpse. 
and it doesn't help. It brings poison. It brings pain and destruction. Malice filling the depraved mind. It bears an evil presence that harms others. The malicious person is set against others to cause them trouble and grief. There's a persistence in this one that is full of malice. In other words, they're going to come again and again and again to cause trouble for others. Not for a good cause, but for their own ends. These are some of the words that Paul selects to describe the depraved mind, what has filled that heart and mind. They've rejected God. They've said, I'm done with him. The knowledge of God, I don't need it. It's worthless. Instead, they have attached themselves to this. That's what has filled their hearts. God has given them over to their own depravity, which is fully saturated with ungodliness of every kind. And then in verse 29, the end of it, Paul picks up on that, that which is filling the heart man is going to act upon. So the depraved mind doesn't just store up lots of naughty stuff in his brain. They actually act upon that which fills their heart. What these verses show us that, that what has filled the heart will determine how one acts. And predominantly, these godless qualities describe how men act towards other men. In the news within the past couple of years, there have been a number of murder cases. And if you follow the news at all, some of these murderers surprise the people that know them, family members or neighbors. They say, I didn't see him coming. I didn't see this guy acting this way. I didn't know he would do this kind of thing. And then they bring in the police detectives and investigators. And they look into their computers. They go through all their stuff in their homes. And they begin to paint a picture of somebody that was very, very disturbed. They're on the internet looking for ways to destroy evidence or to build bombs or how to find a country that won't extradite. You begin to develop what was on the heart. A criminal may not look like one on the outside, but when the mind is filled with all kinds of evil, evil actions will follow. It is no different for those with a depraved mind. What their minds are filled with, they act upon. What they contemplate, what they believe and lust for inwardly will be expressed outwardly in actions and actions that are hostile to others. Paul writes that those with depraved minds are gossips and slanders. This is what they act out. Some have suggested that the difference between a gossip and a slander is the gossip is more secretive. The slanderer is very open and out with it. And that may be true, but in both cases, the gossip and the slanderer are manipulating, they're massaging the truth to cause harm to others. Evil minds will speak evil of others with deceptive and harmful words. The hater of God is next, and it's a rather curious inclusion, I think, especially in this part where Paul is identifying this is what man is doing to other men, and all of a sudden, here, there's a hater of God. Is Paul switching directions here? It's curious that this list shows the depravity of minds accusing and bringing harm to others. Then out of nowhere, Paul switches gears and shows God is under attack also. Then he returns back to attacking men. I do believe that Paul means there is a hatred for God here. But there's a reason why it's tucked here in between these expressions of an evil person against others. James Boyce adds a helpful suggestion. 
And this is not a quote that we're going to bring up on the board. But when wicked, he says, when wicked men show hatred towards others, like gossiping, slandering, unrighteous ways, they're doing this, they're showing hatred to God. Because, remember, they've gotten rid of the knowledge of God. They don't want that. So they bring in all, they fill their minds with all this unrighteousness. And they express themselves in that unrighteousness toward other men, they are actually showing their hatred for God in their hatred for men. Anytime men and women oppose the ways of God, even in how they treat others in destructive ways, they are showing their hatred for God, not just their hatred for men. And we're sometimes witness to others who claim to be Christian and who claim to be acting out in the name of Christ, but when they slander, when they deceive, when they cause evil to others, when they're malicious, they're acting in anger and hatred. They attack. They're contentious, bringing harm and pain to others. They're like a snake that, that brings that poison and pain and destruction. They're not acting on, acting on behalf of God, no matter what they're saying. In fact, they're showing disdain for the ways of God. The insolent, the arrogant, the boastful show a love for self that denies any love for God. Insolence, it's a kind of pride that treats others as beneath oneself. Pride or arrogance expresses to others a contempt for everyone but himself. And the boastful person, he makes use of a form of deception where they make a claim about self that is not true. And very often the person that is boastful builds himself up by making others look bad. The depraved mind will also invent evil, Paul writes. They plot they prepare, they execute evil on others. And they use their creativity, their genius, their intellect to devise ways that will bring trouble on others. And if you go back to Proverbs chapter 6, that also is one of the seven things that God hates. The heart that devises wicked plans. At the end of verse 30, Paul writes of those who are disobedient to parents. And I can say with quite a bit of certainty, that's going to include every single one of us, including myself. A significant part of parenting, in fact, is training children to obey because they naturally want to disobey. Paul must have something more heinous in mind than that which we all are prone to do. Otherwise, we would be born as those who have already been given over to a depraved mind before those minds were ever functioning. So this disobedience to parents is the product of the depraved mind that will no longer find any value in God or his word. They're filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness. They're filled also with a disdain for authority, especially parental authority, and show a lack of gratitude for those who provide care for them. They're continually rebellious, ungrateful, and they will act in hateful ways toward their parents. The final four qualities of a depraved mind that expresses itself in actions against others is shown in verse 31, where we see first they are without understanding. The meaning here is there's a lack of intelligence or those who act foolishly where wickedness is also implied. So they may be very intelligent people, but where the truth of God and his righteousness are concerned, they're unintelligent. They're foolish. I'd like to quote from Robert Haldane, 
in his commentary, he describes this well. The persons so described were not destitute of understanding as to the things of this world. Yet in a moral sense, or as respects the things of God, they were unintelligent or stupid. And again, we see many in our culture around us, very educated, very intelligent people. But they have so ultimately rejected God, they have shown themselves to be fools. It is a fool that has said in his heart, there is no God. Further, the depraved mind acts in a way that cannot be trusted. And the word for trustworthy is literally a covenant breaker. They make an agreement. They present themselves in a certain way. Or they sign a contract and they will not be trusted to keep it. They convince others of one thing, but trust is another. They're all unloving. They're un- without mercy, it says. They describe the- this describes the person that seems to have little or no natural affection for others. And because they've already known to be deceivers who cannot be trusted, they may very likely boast of their great love for others, but their actions tell a different story, one of self-love not of true compassion for others. As a result, they are ruthless and without mercy. They may be ruthless with their action towards others, or they may show no mercy with their words and their testimonies about others. These are qualities that are witnessed in those who have a depraved mind, who do things that are not proper towards others. And I love the explanation that John Murray gives in his commentary on the outward expression of those whom God has given over to a worthless mind. He writes, In any case, as we scan the whole list, we cannot but be impressed with the apostles' insight into the depravity of human nature as apostatized from God, the severity of his assessment of these moral conditions, and the breadth of his knowledge respecting the concrete ways in which human depravity came to express. I think Murray captures the thought of Paul very well here, that of exposing what happens as men suppress the truth of God because they've known of God, but found both God and his word to be useless. This has a significant impact on man's moral condition and how he will then express himself towards others and toward God himself. Such a godless man is going to behave in a godless way where even his discernment and reasoning abilities are corrupted, his ability to love, his ability to be trusted, how he speaks of others, the wickedness of his heart. All, it, all of this means he's divorced himself completely from the knowledge of God. This man is filled with all unrighteousness because God has turned this man over to himself who does not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And this brings us to verse 32. We see what the depraved mind is filled with. We see how the depraved mind acts out of that filling towards others. But we see also this is a commitment. This is a devotion that we read about such a depraved person. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Notice twice Paul uses the word practice. Confirming again, the depraved mind will act out. This verse shows that they do so because they are fully committed, fully invested in their rejection of God. 
Note that this is not simply the person that approves of certain evil practices but doesn't practice them himself, nor is Paul describing the person that is living wrongly but is feeling guilt because he knows what he's doing is wrong. That's not the person here at all, is it? This man is practicing these things but also at the same time giving hearty approval to others to practice them as well. This person is practicing godlessness. At the same time, he's exhorting others to be godless. It's a person fully committed and invested in all manner of unrighteousness, both living that way and encouraging others. He's preaching the gospel he's living. What is far more disturbing about this picture is that they know the ordinance of God. They know the decree of God. They stand committed to their wickedness just the same. They know what the word of God says in regard to men's sins, that those sins make man worthy of death. Oh, I know it. I get it. But it doesn't change anything. That's the disturbing part. These persons may not be fully informed of every biblical doctrine or of every kind of detail that is in the gospel, but they have enough knowledge of God to know that the things they do and approve of deserves the penalty of death. Yet, they're not troubled by this so as, so as to make any changes or reforms in their life. That's a tragic picture. And it causes us to wonder, how can men know of God's decree of death and continue unmoved with that knowledge? They've already determined God and his decrees to be worthless. They're intent on suppressing the truth of God, even the truth of his law of death against man's sin. And this decree from God may refer to physical death in the temporal realm, or it may refer to spiritual eternal death. Either way, the one will lead to the other. Physical death will lead to the eternal. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, and this is on your bulletin, Hell is a condition in which life is lived away from God and all the restraints of God's holiness. But this is the way depravity mind works. They want nothing to do with God. What will hell be? It will be a God or a place without God. And this is what they wanted in this life. Eternity will bring them that. These men and women know there is the sentence of death against that which they approve of and that which they live for, but they're not concerned about this simply because they've already determined to live contrary and apart from God. Therefore, they arrogantly boast, if God is not there, give me hell. I'm okay with it. I've actually heard people say that. I remember this... um, a very worldly, drug-addicted rock star, thinking hell is going to be the place they party it up. They're going to drink, and they're going to do their drugs, and they're going to have their sex or whatever they're into. God won't disturb him. Give me hell. This is the way they lived in this life. It is the way they're willing to live in the next. And again, it is only the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, and by God's grace alone that can rescue men of depraved minds. And this is why Paul boasted, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone believes. Are these ones who are under the wrath of God without hope? 
Has God finally given these ones over to sins that they can never be rescued from? From Paul's perspective, certainly not. He declared these words from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen carefully to his own testimony. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul saw himself at that bottom list. And he declares, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst of them. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the worst, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul saw himself as the poster child of that third condemnation. I'm the worst of them, but God has saved me so that I can be an example. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of our Savior. So are these ones beyond hope? I hope we would agree. Not at all. Not at all. If we recall that Paul has named himself the worst of sinners in Romans 1, he would answer, no, no. I was the worst. The Son of God came to this world to save even the worst of all. Are these ones without hope? Paul is saying no. The Son of God came to this world to save even me. And I am a testimony to the world, to the worst of depraved minds, that by the mercy of God, the most vile of sinners can be saved. And we see the perfect patience of Jesus Christ as God draws men to his Son. And those who believe in him are forgiven and will have eternal life. A study of God's wrath revealed from heaven against those who suppressed his truth may not be the most uplifting subject we can draw from God's word, but it certainly points us to the Savior. It lets us know why Jesus came, what he did for us on the cross. We're about to celebrate the death of Christ as we take the bread and the cup together. We're celebrating a sacrifice that God's Son made for us that we can be rescued out of that which God has given us over to. And for this reason, I would like to end today's discussion by answering this question. Why the Christian? Why can we rejoice over God's wrath? Because it doesn't seem like a really happy subject, does it? But I believe that there is reason, there is cause for us to rejoice if we simply look at what Paul is describing here. Number one, God's wrath reveals his perfection. We've noted that before in our previous two studies. The wrath of God that is being revealed is by a God that is absolutely perfect and holy. This is why he's angry. This is why his judgment is turned against a rebellious mankind. It's because he is holy. He is perfect in his righteousness. And his wrath expresses his response to every sinful thought, every sinful act of men. When we read of God's displeasure with and judgment against sin, we are reminded of his perfect character. And this makes sense to us when, number two, we know God's wrath guarantees his salvation. If God is perfect, and we see it in his wrath, if God is holy and is perfect, then we have the assurance, we have the guarantee that the salvation that he made for us is perfect. In other words, it perfectly saves. 
We can be assured that the salvation that he's provided is going to do everything necessary to make us right with that perfect God. God won't lessen his holiness to save a single one of us. He won't compromise his righteousness. And therefore, the cross of his son accomplished everything necessary to make us perfect and righteous in his sight because his salvation is perfect. Because God is holy, his gospel is holy. And we can rejoice in his wrath because the cross has fully satisfied his demand to forgive and restore his people. That's what propitiation means. God is satisfied because of what his son has done. So God's wrath reveals this perfection, which we rejoice in because it tells us that his salvation is perfect, which in turn, number three, God's wrath confirms his glorification. Because God is perfect, his salvation also perfectly saves sinners. And if the cross of Jesus Christ saves perfectly, those who are saved by it are prepared to live in eternal glory. God's wrath confirms his glorification. The promise of God is that he will save perfectly. And what is he doing in saving us? He is making us fit for heaven, is he not? He is preparing us for eternal life. We're being prepared to enter into his haven of perfection and righteousness and sinlessness. We could not stand before God if there were still the blemish of sin on us in any way. Therefore, we rejoice that God is perfect and holy. We rejoice further that because he is holy, his salvation is perfect. It saves perfectly. And he's saving us perfectly. He's going to complete that work to absolute perfection in each and every one of us that are saved so that we can enter into glory and share his glory and be in his presence forever. Those of us that are saved this morning, you are being prepared to enter into his presence for eternity. In these things, can we not rejoice? His wrath teaches us these things, these precious truths. Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that we have together, even looking at the difficult subject of judgment. But in that, we see a God that is perfect and holy. We saw a God that loves sinners in spite of their sin and in spite of, God, your wrath. In your anger against men and their sins, you provided a way to make us perfect in your sight. Righteous. You look at the man or woman in faith in this room today, you see your son in the beauty of his righteousness. So great was your salvation. As the church, we have the obligation of proclaiming your gospel throughout this wretched and dark world. But we're encouraged to know that some will be saved. Some will be rescued. Because that is the power of the cross. That's the power of the gospel. And we give thanks together for this in Christ's name. Amen.